Unearthing Paranormalcy is part of the Green Mushroom Podcast Network. to another episode of Unearthing Paranormalcy, the podcast that digs into the paranormal and tries to find normalcy in the topic. I'm Amy. I'm Dave. And I'm Chad. And today, I've got my serious voice. Oh, do you have a very serious topic? I have a very serious topic. The most serious of all! And we will get to it as soon as we listen to this promo from one of the Green Mushroom Podcast Network shows. I'm Steve. And I'm Jason. And we're the hosts of an explorative podcast called Grognostics, where we mix in one part of curiosity, one part comedy, one part craft beer tastings, one part education, and yet one part fictional stories. Good lord, that's a lot of parts. Look, uh, the show's really cool, okay? I don't know, I'm not so sure now. Sounds more confusing than the time we came over early to your Christmas party last year and found you bawling your eyes out pantless, mind you, to a Lance Bass Hallmark movie. That was a phase, Jason. A phase, I tell ya. Look, if you want to listen, grab a cold one and tune in on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You might even learn a thing or two. That's Grognostics, G-R-O-G-N-O-S-T-I-C-S. Look, my pants were in the dryer. Lance just happened to be on. Sure, buddy. Love the guys over at Grognostics. Yeah, we do. All right. Let's go back to my serious voice. We're going to go back in time. To the Montauk episodes. <gasps> oh, yeah. Let's give them something I'm talking about. I'm not going to make you listen to me singing Aww, yet. But that's I the will. best part. <laughs> but I did read a book. Well, Congratulations. Actually, I haven't finished reading the book. <laughs> it's a long read, but it's not a long read, but it is a long read. Dave knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> oh, yeah. I know exactly what your mom talking about. <laughs> so this would be, I guess, episode 11 of the Montauks. It's either 10 or 11. I don't know. At this point, we've done so many. (laughs) But back many, many months ago, Dave started us down a deep, dark, twisty, and downright weird rabbit hole. Down white wheel. Wabbit. Called the Montauk Project. (laughs) We encountered time travel. Monsters. Lots of engineering and science words, and even a haunted mansion. 
along with lots of synchronicities. Lots of synchronicities. Now I'm going to take us down a different branch of that same deep, dark, twisty rabbit hole. In rabbit season. <laughs> we will, season. We will mention Montauk from time to time. But more is in reference back to an episode that we've already done. So don't worry if you haven't listened to the other 10 episodes of Montauk. It shouldn't affect the plethora of knowledge that I'm about to download into your brains. Or is it upload? I don't know. Either mm. one. It's downloading from my brain into there and uploading into theirs. Or something like that. Mm. Words are hard. <laughs> the main source of information is encounters in the Pleiades. An inside look at UFOs by Preston B. Nichols and Peter Moon. That's right. Pleiadiacs unite. It's time to get alien weird. Feel free to don your styrofoam helmets, your tinfoil hats, or your metal pots as we uncover what Preston B. Nichols had to tell us about aliens. Where do they come from? Where do they go? Where do they come from, Cotton Eye Joe? <laughs> like with Dave's Montauk episodes, we aren't going to wear out words like supposedly and allegedly. Just use those. Use your own judgment and put them in where you feel like they should go or maybe not go. Are we going to use the words cooperate? <laughs> cooperate and wishing. I don't think cooperate is in this one. Oh, no cooperating down the rabbit hole. <laughs> well, I'm excited for this because usually I read these books and talk about them. So now I get to just react. You get to react. We're going to start with chapter one. Yeah. I like starting with chapter five. Well, we'll get there. We end with chapter five. Oh, okay. Nice. So maybe we'll start next episode with chapter five. Ooh. That's a good idea. Just repeat. The last half of this episode to the first half of next episode, like like every single program on Discovery does. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> on the last episode. <laughs> so you're the like, first 10 minutes is the last 10 minutes of last week's episode. Yeah. And you're like. And then every episode is only really 20 minutes long because of the fact that there's commercials. Yeah. And so you, you get 10, 10 minutes of the new episode. <laughs> what was that show we used to watch? It would It would come back from commercial break. And be like, and repeat the last yeah. ten minutes of what you just watched before <laughs> the, the previous. The, yeah, like the last minute or two. Be like, before we took the commercial break, this is what happened. And then it's like, and it's like, man, this would suck to watch streaming. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so UFOs, a general history, unidentified flying, unidentified flying objects, have been mentioned throughout history. As far back as ancient Sanskrit text, even the Bible mentions Ezekiel's winged flying chariot in the Old Testament. And there are many other descriptions of UFOs throughout antiquity. I know we have talked about Samaria and the Anunnaki coming from the sky. So UFOs really are nothing new to mankind. 
the modern UFO phenomena, as we know it, really started around 1947 with the crash in Corona, New Mexico, better known as the Roswell incident. This incident was very well documented in the press, but there were other sightings as well that happened before the Roswell crash. And this book, Preston Nichols, tells of one of these earlier sightings. The earliest sighting I've personally been told of was in 1936. This date, by no coincidence, is when the military was conducting its first experiments with radar. They could, for the first time, look at an unidentified object in the sky and see by looking at the radar screen that it had actual substance and was not of an illusory nature. This was the first hard scientific proof. At that particular time period, UFOs were referred to as flying unknowns. But for some reason, the abbreviation FU didn't stick. <laughs> <laughs> Look at the flying FUs. <laughs> huh, all my fucks have flown off. <laughs> That's where all my fucks go. <laughs> I figured it out. <laughs> Those days that I come into work and my jar of f's or my jar of fuck yous are empty, it's because they've all thrown off into space. <laughs> According to Nichols, after Roswell, UFO crashes began to happen one every three to four months. This is when the Air Force began Project Blue Book, which quote was at least a two layer project unquote. The first priority of the Air Force was to find out all of the information they could concerning UFO sightings and crashes. This fell under the heading of military intelligence gathering and the security of the nation. The second priority was to keep the information out of the wrong hands and potential enemies. By covering up the information and keeping it close to the vest, this included keeping it out of the hands of the general public. They wanted it out of the public eye, not only for national security, but also because of the psychological concern, the fear that a national panic might ensue, and the unknown consequences could be disastrous. The 1939 broadcasts of the War of the Worlds proved that the masses could react badly to the news that aliens were on Earth. Uh-huh. From the book. People across the state of New Jersey began to barricade, flee, and just generally panic when the radio broadcast of H.G. Wells' famous book announced that Martians had landed. This was neither a prank by the station, nor from Orson Wells who narrated the story. The broadcast was fully described beforehand as the reading of a famous book. Well, it's good to know that people have always struggled with listening and being able to discern fiction from fact. That's not good. <laughs> well, just know that we're not alone. It's it's not a 21st thing, century yeah. thing. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. But even with these concerns, there was still something even deeper that the that the government was concerned with. The average person person Average person. <laughs> the average person. <laughs> the average person, especially at this time, if you ask them, where is God? Many of them would point to the sky. Almost as if an advanced culture arrived in a spaceship and the population who was on Earth likely began to 
I don't know, worship them? Believe you that they were not ambassadors from another planet, but God himself. The government would lose what it holds most dear, power and control. Maybe these are the powerful, all-knowing beings stated to have shared their wisdom and knowledge with people, revealing secrets once held so near and dear to the secret schools of the world. No, the government is much better off if people are left in the dark and confused by the information shared with us by the disinformation artists around the world. From Nichols. My information comes from my own experiences. I am a professional engineer and understand all aspects of radar. I have known people who grew up in the industry and have heard countless stories. Some of the stories I have heard could be considered leaks, and others are just information passed on by logical deduction. This is the background against which I will relay my story. I will start by telling of my own personal experience with UFOs, beginning with childhood. In scene. That's the end of chapter one. Got a little too excited there at the end of that last <laughs> That's good, though. It was a fiery, passionate... With those uh, disinformation artists. Yeah. Fiery, passionate topic. Now remember, we have ten other episodes about the life and time times of Preston Nichols and Duncan Cameron and the whole gang, right? Right. You would think that just from what Preston Nichols has told us thus far... That he's had a pretty exciting life. Yeah. And experienced a lot of unbelievable events. Uh-huh. Well, this book just shows us how completely special Preston Nichols might just be. We have talked about in other UFO episodes that those who encounter UFOs and even abductees have experienced them more than once. Normally starting in their childhood and continuing into adulthood. This is no different for Preston Nichols. In the book, Encounters of the Pleiades, an inside look at UFOs, Preston recounts. My first paranormal experience was as a child of about five or six years old. I woke up and saw what I believed to be the face of God looking into the doorway at me. This face definitely did not belong to either of my parents. It was very light-skinned and was surrounded with white hair. Although I encountered this face many times, I do not recall any other unusual experiences until I was in my teens. I still do not know if the face I perceived was directly related to my later involvement with UFOs. He goes on. It was either 1961 or 1962, at the age of 15 or 16, that I saw my first UFO. Just prior to that time period... My parents had built me a small red shack in the far corner of our backyard. I was an electronics nut, and they wanted to get me and my toys out of the house. As I conducted my experiments, they claimed I was making some of the most blood-curdling noises they had ever heard. Of course, in those days, I had not learned how to properly install the negative feedback in the audio amplifier. If it is done incorrectly... There is a screaming and howling that wounds like a banshee. And then there's about five more pages of him talking about how to correctly hook up the connectors for a radio. 
Oh, yeah. He doesn't leave out any details. And then he goes on. <laughs> By building me a shed, my folks let me continue my hobby, but at the same time ensure that I was as far away from the house as possible. It was no time before I had the place filled with radio receivers and a couple of old television sets. I even had some test equipment that looked like it belonged in Marconi's lab. As I had more test equipment than all my other classmates put together, I figured I was having a good old time as a high school kid. While tinkering in my lab one night, I couldn't get anything on the radio receivers but a strange humming noise. I kept it kept coming over the radio it kept coming over my radio receivers. Suddenly, I lost all power and the lights went dark. I soon went outside to witness a glowing disc-shaped object about 200 feet off the ground hovering over my front yard. I estimate the width at 50 feet and the height to be maybe 20 feet. Its color was bright white. All of a sudden, and at once, the disc passed right over my head and took off. It moved upward, then proceeded to make a few impossible maneuvers before going straight up ahead. I also noticed that the lights in my house and the entire neighborhood had been blacked out. After a while, the lights come back on. He then recounts his mother running out of the house. Did you see that? Did you see that? Sure, Mom, I saw that. Do you know what that was? I don't know. It looked like a flying saucer to me. She then went on to tell him that whatever it was had taken out the TV. And he told her about his radios and how they seemed to have just stopped working as well. If we remember back to our Whitley Strieber episode, Whitley was also a child obsessed with electricity and electronics and even burnt down part of his house when he was Uh growing up. Yeah, I remember that. After experiencing a strange encounter. This encounter would turn out to be just the first of many encounters and sightings to happen in the early 60s around the town of Islip, the lo- a town in Long Island that Nichols grew up in. The next setting he recalls occurred in 1964 while he was with a group of kids in his high school. The next thing I knew, the cl- school was emptying out with all of the students running outside. Out of the ball field, behind the school, there was a boomerang-shaped craft doing some sort of flying maneuvers. It was very odd and seemed... Be only about four feet in diameter. I'm still not sure exactly what it was, but it suddenly took off. That that's very interesting because some of the first and most famous flying saucer reports don't have them as saucers, but have them as boomerang shaped mm-hmm. objects. It was just the the artist rendition because I guess he couldn't draw boomerangs; he drew saucers instead. Let's see, there seems to be the saucer report, the boomerang report, the triangle report, and the cigar report. Yeah. Those seem to be the most common now, I could shapes see of the, I could see the triangle one being uh, some of the modern jets we have now, like the B-50, no, like the stealth bombers. The stealth bombers, yeah. And then even the new um, stealth fighters. I could triangular even, shape. I could even see... The stealth bombers being considered boomerang shaped at the time. Yeah. You know, because especially if it like 
we got pretty used to seeing them because they would fly all over. Like our old Chad and I, our elementary school was right in the flight path of the the uh, bombers. So you would it was not uncommon to see them flying over really low. But back in the sixties, if you'd never seen one before, the only difference is this is only four feet in diameter, and the bombers are much bigger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The bombers will block out the sun. <laughs> yeah. Now, I did some looking around, and although I couldn't find any other reports of this particular event, and being as, quote, all of the students were going outside to see, you would think that there'd be at least one other report out there. Uh, not going to say that there isn't one out there. The internet is infinite, and I just didn't find it. I did discover, however, that Long Island is and was a hotbed for UFO sightings. Next, he tells us, uh, tells us of an event that happened to him while he was attending Suffolk Community College in Selden. Students all over campus witness UFOs in mass. As I was part of the elect electrical technology department and had a considerable knowledge of radio, I decided to make a little more interesting and set up all sorts of spectrum analyzers, radio receivers, and cameras. This did the trick. One night, we actually recorded a film of UFOs in the sky. They were very clear pictures, and anyone who stayed up late at night with me was able to witness the sightings firsthand. This was all extracurricular activity and was not treated with security measures of any kind. Consequently, when I came in the next morning to take out the footage, I was disappointed to discover that all of the film had been taken from the cameras. It turned out that someone in the college had reported our activity. The result was that we began to be scrutinized by some sort of government authority. He may have encountered the men, men in black. black. Here come the men in black. Galaxy Defenders. He doesn't talk about any other encounters during his college years. He focuses greatly on his studies and learning about different radio wave technology, etc. It wouldn't be in until 1974 that he would encounter another UFO. And if you want to learn all about radio frequency... You can read the book because there's about five pages about what he learned in college on radio frequencies. <laughs> <laughs> he is... He is very into what he knows. Yeah. Oh, for sure. But that's what makes it a hard read. You get all these really cool stories like this, but then you get like two pages of how a radio resistor works mm -hmm. and I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe you should. Maybe I should. Maybe that is the problem. Maybe hi, it's me. I'm the problem. It's me. <laughs> <laughs> Chapter three, aboard a UFO in the 1970s, Preston Nichols worked for a major defense contractor on Long Island. And in 1974, or 75, he doesn't remember exactly, he was selected to be part of a special crew that would be examining some, quote, foreign, unquote, technology. 
located at an unspecified U.S. Air Air Force base. Or an airface. That's next to the train station, right? More like Air Force base. Sorry, the the plane station. (laughs) Assuming that they were going to be looking for at some kind of Russian or Chinese technology, he was happy to go. His boss then informed him that it wasn't voluntary and he had to go. Dun, dun, dun. He and five others flew from the Republic field on Long Island. And from what he could tell from the air that they were going to Ohio. <gasps> I'm not too sure how you can depict where you are from the air. Unless I guess you fly that path often. But I don't know. That question is to our listeners that fly a lot. Can you tell what state you are flying over? I've only flown four times in my life. So truly, I don't know. I don't have much experience. But back to his story. As long or as soon as they landed, the pilot taxied directly into a hangar. And then they were shuttled from the plane into the back of a van with no windows. They I were got offered some candy. candy. <laughs> Get in the van. We're going to look at alien shit. <laughs> they were in the van for around two to three hours with no idea where they were going. The van stopped. The doors opened. And they were in some kind of underground hangar that was completely empty. They were sent down a long corridor to security where they were given a security briefing. Interesting enough, none of the other five people, one being his boss, remembered much of what was said or what happened. Preston, however, recalls being taken into another hangar where there was a disc-shaped UFO. Hey, that's a UFO! Nichols said to one of the Air Force personnel. Shh, we're not supposed to say things like that. It's a foreign aircraft, the airman said. Nichols goes on to describe the UFO, <coughs> I mean, foreign aircraft, as being the typical disc-shaped flying saucer. It was about 50 feet in diameter and 20 feet tall. There was also a dome on top, which was about 15 feet wide. The whole craft stood on three legs that came from the bottom, a ramp that went from the ground to the doorway on the edge of the craft. They're just, they're just they're describing Marvin the Martian's I know, I was, aircraft. <laughs> I almost added in there where a small man dressed as a Trojan was yeah. standing with... <laughs> I wish I could remember some of the things Marvin the Martian would say. I know. Yes, that is exactly what I pictured when I read that. It was like, oh, so it was Marvin the Martian's craft. Okay, all right. Well, if you do remember, in the previous series, there was a lot of tie-ins to Mars. Oh, no. Was one of the crashy abductees from... Oh, crashy abductees? Was one of the crash survivors from Roswell named Marvin? Is that how we got Marvin the Martian? Has he been forever immortalized as a Looney Tunes character? 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 Mm, maybe so. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. <laughs> I also find that when I am telling stories and I'm reading for the podcast, 
I use my hands an awful lot. You do. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody can see me but these two. (laughs) But I talk with my hands. You guys are so lucky. (laughs) (laughs) It's like the sign language I was giving my daughter earlier. She didn't get it. I don't understand why. It's ASL, Amy Sign Language. (laughs) I understand most of it. From the book. The most the most the most startling aspect of this flying saucer was apparent when I first went aboard. It was absolutely huge inside. Huge. huge. The vessel was only fifty feet in diameter, yet we walked in one direction for what seemed to be ten minutes. There was literally hundreds or thousands of feet of space. I couldn't explain it at the time. By today's knowledge, it is apparent that we had entered an artificial reality when boarding the ship. This aspect of UFO is key to its construction and ability to travel from one location to another. It will be elaborated on later. I'm just thinking, it's a circular ship. (laughs) So yes, you can walk in one direction for a long time (laughs) if it circles around on itself. Round and round. It's like a roundabout. Just keep going. Man, it just doesn't stop. Well, yeah, it's round. (laughs) There's no corners. Preston talks about how they would walk from one compartment to the next. The lights would turn on when they entered and turn off when they left. They were told by the Air Force crew that the saucer had occasional had originally contained a quote unquote odd atmosphere and that had to be converted so that it was compatible compatible for human beings. They were then taken into what is called what was called the control room. The most prominent part of this area were three lounge chairs placed in front. By lounge chairs, I mean exactly that. They were designed for reclining comfort. A group of smaller chairs were in the back. Our group was then informed that the lounge chairs contained all sorts of coils, wires, and other items. It was quite apparent that when a person or creature was reclined in the lounge chair, it was designed to pick up thoughts right out of their heads. Readers of the Montauk Project Experiments in Time will note that this technology is hauntingly familiar to that of the Montauk chair. He goes on to say, On the walls, in front of the lounge chairs, were four view screens. These were also connected to the operator's thought processes. Sitting in the chairs, one could call up different maps, star charts, or photographs from outside the craft. Just by thinking the thought, one could view what was outside the craft in any direction. Behind these screens, there was another small room that had a huge clusters of rock crystals. Coils spiled around the crystals, which were connected at various points by wiring. The walls in this room were nothing but few screens. There were no windows here, or any other portion of the craft. I'm just imagining, you know, it's connected to your thoughts, and all of a sudden, just some porn starts. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, shit. Uh, That's uh, what the chairs in the back were for. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, baseball. Uh, uh, the time we had to bury my dog and I couldn't go to the county fair. <laughs> puppies. Dead puppies. Dead puppies. Dead puppies. Men's butts. Then all oh, of no. a sudden. <laughs> <laughs> now, I do remember them talking about like crystals with wires spoiled around them and stuff in the Montauk project. Yeah. Uh, like Tesla coils, like all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. A lot of this goes back to the Montauk episodes and how the chair worked and all of that. So, yeah. 
You can go back and I think that was episode one, wasn't it? Maybe two. Yeah. It was long ago. He and the crew were taken to the lower levels of the craft, which contained the crew's living quarters, laboratories, and medical facilities. Get out of the laboratory! <laughs> At the very bottom of the saucer, there was a huge room filled with different rock cr- clusters that were interconnected with gold, silver, and platinum wires. There was very little copper wiring. Off the quote-unquote rock room were four smaller rooms, which contained four hemispherical pods that sat below the center of the ship. Each pod contained what appeared to be an assortment of antennas. The bottom of the ship was insulated from the rest of the craft by a huge coil. Huge. This coil was really just a lot of turns of heavy wire and was similar to a degaussing coil used for television sets. The huge coil was connected to the large group of crystals in the center room, which appeared to be the central core of energy. This is essentially how the ship was constructed. I do like the fact that he had to mansplain what a coil coil was. Mm -hmm. Because nobody would ever understand that a coil was a bunch of wires wrapped in a round, like, it's a coil! So you're telling me... He mansplains a lot. Did you know the difference between a coil and a degaussing coil? Well, it's still going to be a coil, so it's still going to be all, like, wrapped round. It's going to be coiled. Okay. <laughs> okay. It's all going to be wrapped round. Deception check. <laughs> Shit, I rolled a one. I roll lots of those. <laughs> Especially when it comes to tummy up with words. They're wrapped round. <laughs> Oh, they're called coils. I always just call them rafty rounds. WRs for short. <laughs> rafty rounds. <laughs> it was apparent to Nichols that the craft's drive derivated from electromagnetic principles. And oh, don't worry. He'll give us a more detailed description later on. Good. <laughs> There were many times where he's like, well, obviously it was blah, blah, blah. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> obviously the wrapping rounds did something important. Does, does he talk about how this all interconnects with the morphogenetic grid that surrounds the Earth? Uh-huh. And other Earth-like structures? He gets into twisters, twisters and spirals, yeah. Oh, hell yeah. Those are the vertical <laughs> wrapping rounds. Ascending and descending <laughs> wrap rounds. <laughs> All right. The team activated the wrap rounds. <laughs> Sorry. The team activated the coils on the saucer and put voltmeters on the wires to measure the voltage. They observed alternating currents, various waveforms, and different frequencies. The craft was levitated about 10 to 20 feet off the hangar floor so that they could do some more tests. Does anyone know how to drive this thing? <laughs> <laughs> they had never seen anything like it before, so no. <laughs> and Nichols never saw anything after it either. Based on what oh, they he went blind. <laughs> based on what they were able to observe, they generated that there had to be some sort of technical reality engineering system in it. From the book. 
What do I mean by reality engineering? Exactly that. I hope that helps. Yep, I got it now. Completely understand it. The Rappy Rounds <laughs> did the Rappy Round thing, which caused the reality of engineering that created reality engineering. All right, I'm just kidding. He continues on. Oh. I'm like, I, I know he did not <laughs> did not pass up explaining this. All right. <laughs> he does not pass up explaining anything. I'm referring to the concept of building or creating a reality. If reality is defined as an agreed upon system of perception and interaction that conforms to certain rules, reality engineering refers to changing that system, or more importantly, it refers to creating a different system that can interface with the original system reality. Tracking it so far? I'm tracking it. All right, he goes on. I know that if I were building a spacecraft, I wouldn't want to rely on a ship that artificially, by machine, maintains a huge space inside of a small ship. If that machine were to fail, everything would crunch together and perhaps disappear. It would be a nightmare. And if I were to do it, I would want a passive system. There would be no electricity and no power. By virtue of the physical shape structure of the craft that I have seen, an alternate reality would have to have been created on the inside. How to accomplish such a feat is another matter entirely, and that aspect will be discussed later on. Just ask the billion and millionaires at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean how important it is that the outside is not controlled by... A PlayStation Electri controller? Electronics. gate <laughs> power. Now, <laughs> fuck, my PlayStation 2 controller died. Now, firstly, I would agree that you could define reality as an agreed-upon system of oh, yeah. perception and interaction that conforms to certain rules. It totally makes sense. Like, yeah. this was something in the book that made complete sense to me on how his thought process was working on it. Now, there was some later portions of it that... I was like, okay, sure. But this part made sense. I was like, okay, this I, I get this. Reality is what we are experiencing right now, but my reality is different from your reality. And your reality is different from his reality, but we haven't all agreed upon universal reality. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, within We're all parameters. sitting at a table. Yeah. We are. But my reality of the table is from this side of the table, whereas your reality from the table is that side of the table. But if we were able to alternate the all-around reality, we could be sitting on a beach somewhere. Yeah. Like, or, yeah. Or if we had a green screen. Yeah. We would, would augment it, reality. We would only see it as a green screen, but everybody that was perceiving us would see it as something different. Yeah. So basically what he's getting at is the people in, or the, the life forms inside of the ship are seeing something that's not there, but it's their reality. Yeah. You know what I mean? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Which is the space. Yeah. The walking for miles. Um, I mean, it's, it's probably a much harder concept to put your head around in the 90s, but anybody who's ever played with virtual reality knows about this. You put on the headset, you stand in one place, and you move about in an area that's massive without ever actually moving back in the physical world. Yeah. Yeah. Precisely. So they very much could have... I mean, I could see how the Montauk chair could do that, but 
to have the sensation you're going into the space and then the space becomes that it's very homer simpson steps into 3d land you remember that episode Mm -hmm. all right i know i know you were just starting to get it too and then he says hold up wait a minute trust me this whole book is just this way and i'm going to bet that the other books were this way too huh dave uh-huh. <laughs> Where he starts telling about it, and you're like, okay, yeah, I get it, I get it. And he's like, I'll talk about it later. Yeah. He's like, wait, because <laughs> he's like, oh, I got to tell you about this other concept yeah. first before, or you won't get this next part. Yeah. But yeah. he does go back and he does talk about it later on in the book. And that's really just the nature of trying to explain massive topics. Like, I know I do it with occult topics. I'll get off in a tangent in the middle of them and be like, oh, yeah, I should probably tell you what what this part means real yeah, quick. It's, it's very much you can see his thought process as he goes through the book mm-hmm. because he'll talk about this one thing and then he'll pause stop go to something different and then flip back to where he was just at it's it's really much very much the thought process of a technical genius as he's sitting there and he's explaining it he goes oh yeah i've got to tell you about this before yeah. you'll understand this so let me go back and tell you about this, and then we'll get back to this topic. And then people like me with ADHD forget what the first topic was in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, back to the book. Preston and his colleagues conclude that there is a single control system that uses the three chairs to pick up the commands from the pilots in said chairs. The crystals behind the control room are the computer. The larger cluster in the lower deck along with the antenna array, all within the coil around the base, create a space-time reality generator, a self-contained system that appeared to Preston Nichols to be a simple setup. And it was their job, and at this, their job was complete. And they jumped back on the plane and went back to Long Island. Huh. Now, of course... Their little UFO field trip was confidential and was not to be talked about. But, I mean, he had just seen, been in, and worked on a freaking UFO. So Preston finally broke down and asked his colleagues about their trip. But none of them remembered the trip. He then realized that he, too, was having problems with his memory. And he says in the book... I was living a buried life that I didn't have full recognition of until years later. It was in this other life that I was able to witness another UFO. This one happened to be in the underground facility at Montauk. In my buried life, I was working at both Brookhaven Labs and on the Montauk Project and saw this craft during a work assignment. This craft was more oval-shaped than the one from Wright-Patterson, and I, as that I have already described... It had the same screens and chairs, but were, but there were also knobs and buttons in addition to a different number of operating systems. I was not involved in reverse engineering this craft, but was assigned only to help disassemble the different systems as well as the ship itself. The craft came apart in sections, which is similar to reports that have circulated about the ships of the Grey Aliens. In both of these saucers that I have witnessed up close, the whole appeared to be an entire unit itself. And if you notice, he talks about White Wright Patterson Air Force Base. He eventually, at some point, discovered that that's where he was when he worked on that first UFO. <clears throat> yeah. 
Now, in the very first book, he recalls how he regained his a lot of his memories of all this when he was working on a Delta T antenna for Brookhaven Labs. And he recalled a time he was uh, working on a similar antenna for the Montauk project. <clears throat> and I bet we're about to talk about that. Sometime. And do you remember that? Like he, he was like on a hunch. He just went into like a random building on the yeah. place he worked at. And then they were like, Oh yeah. Right this way, Mr. Nichols. And he's like, I've never been here. Yeah. <laughs> and then he found an office with his name on the door and shit. He's like, Oh, he said, dad is looking at the paperwork and he's like, what the hell? This isn't genius. <laughs> <laughs> All right. On to chapter four. Your Yorifo. You're for Tapurperin. <laughs> UFO. Torpedo Man. Torpedo Man. Preston Nichols' next encounter with a UFO happened in 1989, not too long before he was terminated from BJM Company. BJM had been contracted to build a special UHF transmitter for the U.S. government. And they kind of sucked at it. So they turned the contract over to him directly because he had the reputation for putting together, quote unquote, spook, pro spook projects from the book. Now, if I'm remembering right, BJM was a made up company for the book. But if you change, if you change all the letters down one, you get the AIL company, I think it was. Or was it the CK? No, it was the AIL company, which is an actual company that operated on Long Island that did a lot of secret government projects. But they didn't want to name them in their book. Yeah. So they made up this BJM company. Pro job manufacturers. Yeah. <laughs> After being given the assignment, I picked up the phone immediately and spoke to the customer who told me he required a pulse modulated transmitter that transmitted at a specific frequency. The information was on the exact frequency is still classified. I told him what he needed was a tube transmitter, not a solid state configuration. After we spoke, I went through the warehouse at BJM and picked out an old airport transmitter that would put out about 500 watts of radio frequency in the UHF region. I dusted it off, fixed it up, and got it operating to the customer's specifications. It was, it was frequency pulse modulated and ran in the upper UHF band. After it was finished, we took a small helical antenna structure and mounted it on a tripod. Soon after, I was told to drive down to Fort Meade. I signed it out, put it in the back of my Dodge Caravan, and made the five-hour drive down to Maryland. Upon arriving at Fort Meade, I was surprised at the lack of security. After identifying myself, they simply said that they knew who I was and that I could go down to Hangar 6A or some such des designation. He then goes and meets up with two men from the government. He was told to set up the equipment and wait. One of the men then says into his walkie-talkie, We're ready. Over. A small UFO approached until it was right in front of them. As soon as it reached them, Preston Nichols was then told to turn on the transmitter. When he did, the UFO become, became unstable. It started to make a strange noise and wobble. One of the men said, oh, Shut it off. It works. Over. 
They then told him to take back, take the transmitter back to BJM and let it sit there. Preston went back and his boss told him to put it on the back bench and what and Preston's workspace from the book. About two months after my trip to Maryland, I kept hearing that the satellite receiver group at BJM was working on some new equipment. According to the reports I was getting, they were tracking UFOs via satellites. What they were actually doing was picking up signals from satellites that had been designated to follow crafts by reference to their electromagnetic signature. This work originally began at a time when the Reagan administration had provided a huge budget for the Strategic Defensive Initiation, more popularly known as Star Wars. At this particular time period, which I recall to be September 25th, 1989, I was told to sign out the transmitter again and take it home. If anything were to go wrong, I was told the equipment was covered by the company's insurance policy. At 9 o'clock that same evening, I got a call telling me to take the transmitter to the sound end of William Floyd Parkway at 10 o'clock. People would be waiting for me at the end of the parkway and would give me further instructions. At 9.30, two assistants from work showed up and said they were supposed to accompany me out to the parkway. We hopped in my van and took off. I just wanted to interrupt Preston Nichols for a second here. This sure is starting to sound like a Scorsese film. (laughs) (laughs) All right, back to it. Upon arriving at our destination, we found a police barricade. I drove up and said that I have some equipment for BJM and was told to report there. The police said they were expecting me. They told me to go down to the left and check in with the guys at the end of the parking lot. I did so and saw some of them wore army-type military fatigues. Others were in plain clothes or business suits. I was then introduced to a man who told me to put the unit on the back of a jeep. My associates and I then got in the jeep and we were driven down the sand dunes to Smith Point, located within Smith Point Park. When the jeep stopped, we were shown a table that had already been set up for us. To the left of the table and towards the water was a big van with a spinning radar antenna on it. To the right of the table was a big dish with a huge thing in the middle that looked like a refrigerator. Normally, this is where the antenna structure would be placed. Toward the water just ahead of us was a 400 hertz generator, which was turned on, a humming away. As I put the transmitter on the table, some of the guys waiting for us pointed out the modulation, power, and RF cables. He said, hook it up, and we did. After that, he told us to make sure that everything was working. I then checked out all the stages and everything was operational. Then he picked up a walkie-talkie and called someone. Next, someone else looked at the back of the nearby van and said, Turn it on. We're ready for a test. Then I turned on the transmitter. A sort of bluish glow reflecting out from the dish and headed towards the sky. Then the man who had called for the test yelled, Everything was okay. We were told to stand by and wait. I believe this testing occurred at approximately 10.30 in the evening. Then at about 11 to 11.15, we heard helicopters in the distance. They were heading towards Marikes Bay from the north. Suddenly, the helicopters began to circle around a point in the sky. A couple of big lights could be seen within the area of the sky that the helicopters were circling. The lights, along with the pursuing helicopters, moved south over Marikes Bay. As they came directly over our heads, the crew next to me turned on a very powerful light, and we saw a huge wedge-shaped UFO. It was triangular and appeared to be at least 300 feet across. 
It continued to move south until it reached the shore. Then it made a U-turn and headed back north. By the time it arrived over the water of Morix Bay, the equipment around me began to hum and buzz. The next thing we saw was the UFO fluttering and wobbling. It made strange whiny noises and then went down. There was a large splash and thud. Wow, did Preston Nichols just save the world? I think he did. <laughs> Yay. Rest in peace. As soon as the UFO crashed, Nichols was ordered to turn off the transmitter, put it back in the Jeep, and leave. They were then followed by some agents on their way home. And those agents camped outside Nichols' house all night. Strangely, Nichols' phone did not work that night. But his neighbor's phone worked just fine. The next day, at work, he and associates were told to forget everything they'd seen that night. But luckily for us, Nichols had learned how to counter the debriefing procedure at, by this point and was able to remember everything while his associates weren't able to. This incident is strangely known as the Morachi's Bay UFO crash. This I did actually find some Reddit posts about. After this event, Preston Nichols was let go from BJM because they discovered he could counter the forget-me-not security system. But that allowed him plenty of time to research UFOs and Montauk. He became the science consultant for Long Island's UFO network at the time and was able to look more deeply into matters of UFOs. In the next episode, we will get into some of the technology of the UFOs, how to make those alternative realities, yes. twisters and spinners, and even Albert Einstein. Don't forget oh, about the wraparoundies. Yeah. The wraparounds are very important. So we will start next episode at chapter five. Chad. Chapter five. You did a great job on this. I am excited to hear more. The next episode will be a more technical episode. Yay. Mm. <laughs> uh, I will try to make it half as entertaining as this. That's about all I can promise. Yay. Um, now, so Albert Einstein showed up earlier in the Montauk books as well when they were talking about his theory of relativity. We get into his theories of relativity. We get into the money backing Einstein. Oh. And why Einstein may be more notable than some other, I don't know, John Parsons or Jack Parsons-esque people. Yeah. You know, Jack Parsons invented the rocket. Yeah. But and you don't hear I about mean, him because he was evil, because he was a Satanist. But he really wasn't. He was just a magic person. And I... And I I want to say the Montauk books were saying that the wickedest man in the world actually published the theory of relativity years before Einstein ever did. Mm -hmm. But when you hear the money that is backing it, all of my reptilian theorists will go, aha. <laughs> <laughs> because I went, aha. Uh oh. <laughs> Uh oh. <laughs> <laughs> there might. You know, I love UFO stuff because I really get sucked into the conspiracies of UFOs. And sometimes I'm not sure if I believe them or not. 
but then things will happen. We'll all read something. I'm like, ah, it's that really an agenda. (laughs) (laughs) In fact, in uh, my humanities class that I'm taking, I had to read a piece, um, uh, whatever it was, it talked about the Pleiadian order in it. (laughs) <laughs> and I just underlined it and went, what the fuck? Like, right next to it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you were showing me that. Uh, I was, well, because he talks about, because well, that's the one he talks about, uh, Hermes Trismegiddus. is the very first line that he talks about him. Yeah. And then he talks about ancient Egypt, and he talks about a bunch of ancient cultures and biblical cultures and stuff like that. And then he's talking about it's I think it's the origin of man or something like the dignities of man or so I don't something like that. And uh as I'm sitting there reading it and then all of a sudden I read Pleiadian order, I'm like, holy fucking shit, what is this? It's the order of which all life is regulated upon the earth. Um But my mind has been an aliens because I'm reading <laughs> the encounters with the Pleiades. Yeah, if you're unfamiliar with Pleiades, it was the star cluster that all agricultural societies look to to know when to plant and when to harvest. We have an earlier episode about it. Oh yeah. Yeah. Back in the And it all ties hundreds. in with uh <laughs> like Taurus and old cave paintings and some of the oldest cave paintings in the world are of the stars of the Pleiades. They go back like, I think, 40,000 years. Well, my next episode is going to be about the technologies. Yeah. But then the next episode after that, we will get into the different alien races, the different alien organizations, Oh. what the aliens want from us. Who are the good guys? Who are the bad guys? And who don't give a fuck? Or at least, <laughs> at, at least what it all was in the mid '90s, huh? Well, at least according to Preston Nichols. Well, yeah, that goes without saying. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, mo- motives change is all I'm y- saying. Yes, but there are the good aliens, there are the bad aliens, and then there's the pre- the pure neutral aliens. The good, the bad, and the neutral. Yes, it's very much it. Game of D&D. I hope everybody's all in the alien conspiracy <laughs> mindset. Always. I am too. I'm just always in the conspiracy mindset. Conspiracies are just fun. The thing I just cons- enjoy coming up with them. The things with the conspiracies to me is you just don't ever go full hard into them. Yeah. yeah you, you just <laughs> use the tip. Yes, you yeah. just use the tip, see how it feels, and then move on. <laughs> because you don't want to end up like some, you know, you know, raid pizza shops. <laughs> Sometimes a conspiracy is a conspiracy theory is just a theory. Sometimes it's truth. But it's always just there's a little bit of truth and a little bit of I don't know. Don't take it all as fact. Lux yeah. over at the Lux Occult podcast did a wonderful episode about about this and kind of some of the ethics around it and things like that. And I think she did a really good job on uh, kind of calling people to action to always use your discernment. Yeah. Truthfully, if something sounds too extravagant, it probably is. 
Not saying there's not truth to it, but it might be a little exaggerated. Yeah. That that fish caught might have only been about three inches long. Don't listen to that fisherman telling you it was six foot. Right. You know what I mean? Like It doesn't mean he didn't catch the fish. Yeah. Just might not be as monstrous as originally thought. <laughs> Yeah. And I feel like we can take that with any episode we do, with cryptids, with ghosts, all of that. Yeah. It's all going to be a little bit exaggerated. Yeah. Not to say it didn't happen. It's just how much truth is in the depiction. You know, did that picture just fall off the wall or was it thrown across the room? It was thrown across the room. <laughs> it's a demon. I need an exorcism. Call the temple courtesans. <laughs> <laughs> the harlots and the prostitutes. Call the priest. Wait a second. We need to exercise these diamonds. <laughs> and a one. And a two. And a three. And a four. <laughs> Come on, ladies. <laughs> I'm so looking forward to the... Um What's his name? Uh, Polly Shore biopic of Richard Simmons. I oh, am too, yeah. and Richard Simmons is pissed about it because yeah. he wasn't asked. But Polly Shore looks just like Richard yeah. Simmons. Well, Richard Simmons came out of the woodwork mm-hmm. at, uh, to talk to Polly Shore about it. Oh, and did you know that Richard Simmons never wore a headband? You've been Mandela affected. I apparently have because I totally was picturing a headband. I'm not. Yeah. Nobody can find a single picture one of him wearing a headband. Our grandma in the early 90s was obsessed with sweating to the oldies. And I don't know how many times I would go over to grandma's house and we would do some sweating to the 90s and watch some Richard Simmons. (laughs) Maybe mom too. I just remember doing it at grandma's house. (laughs) Sweating to the oldies. A lot of people were into that stuff, like in aerobics. Mom was much bigger into Susan Powder. Yeah. But Mima, I think, was the one who was big into the, I was going to say the Polish Shore. I was big into Polish Shore <laughs> in the 90s. Uh, Grindy. <laughs> actually, we just watched uh, Son-in-Law the other day. I bought it just to watch it because I was like, oh, I love this movie. Mm-hmm. I have it on VHS and on DVD, and I now have the digital copy. <laughs> Because, yes, I was a huge Polly Shore fan. I still love Polly Shore. Now he mainly just owns a comedy club. I was watching one of his newer comedies, and he was talking about how he'd gone into his normal coffee shop. I think I shared it with one of you. Probably me. And he was like, he, they asked, you know, for his name. He he did the wheezy, you know, we, you know, thing. And the, like, He's like, the 12-year-old behind the counter just looked at me like I was insane. He said, her boss, on the other hand, was laughing, knew exactly who I was. <laughs> it's like, oh, it's Polly Shore. And then he's like, then I realized. I'm that, not on TikTok. <laughs> well, he's like, then I realized that if you don't know about me and the, he's like, I just look like. Some weird ass man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And some weird ass old pedophile or something like that. It was funny. <laughs> I had the biggest crush on Polly Shore. 
And this is back in the day. In the army now, Encino Man. Biodome. Biodome. We went to bi- the Biodome right after that movie came out. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, son-in-law. Son-in-law, yeah. <coughs> uh, all kinds of good movies. All right. Well, I would like to see his biopic of Preston Nichols. <laughs> well, actually. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think the, the actor that plays... Sheldon. <laughs> yeah, he yeah. would make a great Preston make Nichols. A good Preston Nichols. Uh, Parsons. Yeah. Uh, I, I can't remember. James? Jack? Jack Parsons is uh, the <laughs> record. <they>, uh, <laughs> is his last name really Parsons? I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I'm pretty sure too. Let's look at Oh, up. wow. I thought it was like Cooper or something. That's the character's last name. Ah, that's why I'm confused. Jim Parsons. Jim Parsons. I wonder if he's related to Jack in some way. <laughs> oh my God! If we have the synchronicity that goes all the way back, can we get start pulling it? <laughs> oh my goodness! Oh, but that's how the Montauk Project works. Well, where's Jim Parsons from? But Long Island. Not even Texas. Or the Northeast. Well, people might move around the country over the generations. People migrate. Yeah. Yeah, he's from Houston, Texas. He's 50 years old. Wait a second. He's the son of Milton Joseph, Mickey Jack Parsons Jr. Oh. There we go. The synchronicities are lining up. Is he employed by MGM, (laughs) MGM, (laughs) CBS, the CBS that we'd figured out it was was NBC that they own? What was the name of the lab that they worked at on that show? The university. Oh, does ever say though, does it? I'm sure it does. I just don't remember. I have actually, honestly, never watched the entire show. So good. I watched multiple episodes, but I've never. No, they're doing a spinoff following uh, Penny. Oh yeah. Yep. Oh really? Now that they finish Young Sheldon. I tried to watch Young Sheldon. I couldn't get into. I like little. I like watching little tidbits. Like the little scenes and stuff from it, but I can't watch the show. But I am sure he has done some work for MGM, who funds the Montauk Project. (laughs) 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 See, the synchronicities are never-ending when it comes to the Montauk. Oh, yeah. And I find them all the time. You know what I haven't (laughs) seen in the Montauk yet that shows up in a lot of other places? Owls. Who? Owls or otters. I have yeah. not heard of any otters on Montauk either. More owls, though. When, especially when it comes to like Paranormal, alien, yeah. alien stuff. Yeah, you're reading that book that I read, The Messengers. I'm listening to it. Uh, I mean, I listen to it. I consider that reading because that's about as much reading as I do. Like, I went and specifically bought this book on with Audible. Not on Audible, but on my Kindle so that I could listen to it. <laughs> Because mm. I just I don't have time to sit and read. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, which you're an auditory learner. Yeah. All right. Well, that's gonna do it for this week's episode. I hope you're aliened. I hope you got your wrap rounds. <laughs> <Your> wrappy rounds. <laughs> your wrappy rounds. Whoa, 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 whoa! 
Aren't sometimes alien eyes described as wraparound eyes? Wraparounds. I just noticed that. Be sure to check out our Facebook, Instagram, and Discord. And... We got an Opsin episode coming at you next week. We sure do. And until next time, keep digging. Where did they come from? Where did they go? Where did they come from? Got Nigel. Well, actually, the Planey Star System. Underthink Paranormalcy is part of the Green Mushroom Podcast Network. To hear more great independent productions like the one you just listened to, visit our catalog 